0: How's it joining us this week is Matt Lynch, director of sustainability initiatives for the university of Hawaii. He's one of those people who I feel smarter after talking to every single time, a practitioner of permaculture, Matt is always looking at improving systems that we use daily. We chat about permaculture and systems, applying it in practice, his crazy career arc and general geeky sustainability stuff. Mahalo for tuning in. Please subscribe and leave a rating for our podcast. Welcome to on the rock. What's up, Matt, are you doing Nate? <laughs> Welcome. It's, it's it's been a long time coming because you're like one of the first guys I reached out to um, when I was starting this thing up and then I finally got you on so I'm sorry
1: it took you so <laughs> long
0: that's entirely on me no I know you're busy and you're like you're and we can go through what you do but I know you're in ed- the education space and I think when I started this um, well it's still on fire but at the time it was a, a raging a raging forest fire I think it's a little more under control but We'll start with protocol, um, name, where you're from, and then, so, you know, one of the things I do to prep for the the recording is I'll I'll look at people's LinkedIn, so, Uh yeah, yeah. but let's go, like, tell me, so you took a little sabbatical, so tell me, like, where was, like, the top most interesting place you went during your sabbatical, your travel sabbatical, and then we can start from there. Wow,
1: that was more than ten years ago. So <laughs> it's uh, um, well, I mean, two two places that were formative for me. I was based in Australia, which is a very big place, as you know. So <laughs> I was yeah. more more specifically, I was based in the south eastern corner um, of us in in the state of Victoria. Um, and in a place called back and forth between my parents home in melbourne in the suburbs of melbourne and in uh, what is now sort of dairy country in the Angatha. and i wish i could actually tell you the tribal names of that area but i'm uh, kind of bummed to acknowledge that i don't know that area well enough to to be able to recount that but anyway that was um That was home base for me between a permaculture farm in Gippsland and um, my my mom and dad's house in the suburbs. And then I think the most formative place that I visited in that time was Mongolia. um, And that absolutely uh, shifted my paradigm on 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 many different levels that those experiences I still carry with me today. It's, It's quite a magical place.
0: Also, I mean, uh, I mean, what kind of stuff did you see and, and pick up in Mongolia that really shaped your your thinking?
1: Well, the context that we were there is important to understand first. So I, at that time, was studying permaculture under my teacher who had the farm in Gippsland. And his background was that he had worked. On every continent except for Antarctica, on various permaculture projects.
0: Cool.
1: Um, Yeah, mostly doing, mostly working as a consultant for various international aid and development kind of NGOs, and mostly on food security type initiatives. Um, So, various types of direct farmer trainings and community based. sort of development uh so i was interning under him uh, and i was his media guy um i finagled my way onto that trip by convincing him that he needed to blog and (laughs) use the internet to um leave leave a, a trail behind um you know digital crumbs for others to follow um and i was also like intensely interested to was really skeptical about seeing how somebody could be effective in a place that they didn't have any connections to. Um, It felt very colonial to me. Um, And then to go and experience and bear witness to and participate and contribute to the project that was quite impactful and led to additional work and a relationship that I have today um, with people there. that was you know one thing that was sort of paradigm shifting for me um and understanding just how powerful the principle of working from pattern to details are so like identifying these like universal patterns and principles that lend themselves to an infinite means of expression according to what context you're in was that still guides me to today, you know, and it was only through that lived experience. And then the place itself. So um, walking around Ulaanbaatar, just in the first couple of days, you know, I have mixed ancestry. So I'm descended from Irishmen and Scotsmen on my dad's side and from all kinds of different Filipinos on my mom's Mm -hmm. side. Um, And then being in Hawaii for generations, you know, we've intermarried and so I have Korean aunties and, you know hawaiian cousins and yeah japanese and Okinawan, and you know all kinds. everything right? so, yeah exactly so when i was walking around the capital city of ulaanbaatar i was double taking every so often because i would see my uncles and auntie's faces in the different sort of mongolian um, features and you would, oh, you, could, you could kind of see all the different asian you know, sort of phenotypes like expressing themselves in this very, very ancient Asian culture. Um, so that that was just like, and and then, so there's this like familiarity, and then the landscape is just so completely foreign. The first time you're there is <laughs> summer, um, and so it's like the steppe of Mongolia, are just these vast grasslands with like outcrops of trees on the edges. It's not entirely flat. They're kind of shallow basin after shallow basin. Um, They're like the nubs of mountaintops that have eroded down. Okay. So kind of in the erosion gullies around the rims where there's enough rainfall um, to support trees, you get these, these little, little clusters of trees, but the the landscape has co-evolved with people and their movement across with their herds of animals. Sure. And it's kind of like, like being in the ocean except you're on land, because it was just so vast. And it's, it was really quite a trip. Um, and we went uh, the second time. I, I, I was fortunate. I was invited back to Mongolia about a year and a half later um, to help co-lead a pilot project, a four-year four sort of food security um, pilot project in the ancestral homeland of um, my colleague who, who became a very good friend um, in the Altai Gobi which is sort of like the northern, northwesternmost sort of edge. It, there, there's a mountaintop there where, depending on where your foot is, you're either in Mongolia, Russia, or Kazakhstan—like that—that <laughs> that area of the world. Wow. Yeah, Th- these are the guys you have probably seen those internet memes of. Like, you think you're tough, but you're not Mongolian tough. And the guy's like <laughs> on a horse with like an eagle in one hand and like a, like a gun in the other. And you know, like his kid. And so that's that's my friend. That's his peoples, right? <laughs> and, uh, so we are in this area called Bayan Ogi, which is the city that he grew up. It's, we had to drive like four days across the steppe to get to this place. That's crazy. Yeah. And then it's this urban enclave, you know, in the middle of this like super stark landscape where I, I got sort of kidnapped along the way by this... Um, crazy band of marauding um mongolian women driving a humvee <laughs> yes, that's interesting <laughs> and um uh so this is whole massive adventure to get out there and the second time it was winter so it was like minus 40 before windchill you know and so it's just it's such a foreign landscape and it's so ancient and simultaneously so modern like we're like You know, I'm I'm in a, Hummer. Yeah. With you know these contemporary Mongolian women who are dressed to the nines, you know, high heels, everything. Oh wow. (laughs) But like with features and a spirit that is just like, you know, fiercely grounded in their ancestry. You know. Sure. Um, and yeah, so I'm kind of rambling a bit, but you.
0: I no, can get a get a sense for like how I mean uh, how much it lingers, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean the the details and the amount of stories you have, you know, kind of wow. coincided how much it impacted you. So that makes sense. Uh But are they still pretty nomadic there, or are they? Because it's it was typically. A, I mean, my understanding is pretty light, but my understanding of the general culture there is it was a nomadic culture, right? That's how they. It kind of survived is it still like that or is it more domestic yeah it's really
1: so it's a it's a land of contrasts um so why their traditional culture evolved to become this nomadic culture is because that what was matched the severity of the landscape it's a very thin margin for survival and they just they like thrive within that margin so the the winter there you basically have a 90 day growing season. So you can't really grow enough, um, to store, you know, for, a, a nine month sort of cold season. Sure. Um, and so the animals are your energy store through the winter. They can survive the winter along with you. And so it's a really, like if Kalo is the staff of life for Hawaiians, yeah. it's the the herd, the horse and the goat and the herd, animals um, are the staff of life. And when, when you participated in like a slaughter and there's this reverence and there's, there's even this exchange between the animal, the animal knew and it was very peaceful. Um, uh, and it was this acknowledgement of this sacred sacrament that this sentient creature ha- has to give up his life sure. you know, for us to continue to leave to live and um so yeah so so what's happened when i was there 10 years ago um is they were already dealing with pretty massive climate disruption so okay at the turn of the century um ulaanbaatar the, the capital city well, let's give some framing context so the landmass of mongolia um, very large. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big (laughs) Um, place. Yeah. And, um, the population, as far as they know, the best that they can do a census with a distributed nomadic population was their best guess was they had about 3 million people that basically were sort of scattered across, you know, an area about the, um, landmass of sort of the, the, the Southern part of the United States. Um, in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar uh, in the 90s uh, had a population of about half a million. Um, and that was after a population boom of when the Soviets opened up, they, they, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, they essentially drew down from Mongolia mm-hmm. and they went from a controlled um, closed state economy to an open free market economy in the 90s. Okay. And so there was this sort of initial in wave of people, of, yeah. people yeah, money, direct foreign investment, exactly. Extractive mining interests mostly yeah. from China.
0: Usually, um, <laughs> usually that's <exactly>. what happens. <laughs> Somebody yeah. comes in and like, hey, you got some stuff there. I want to take it out and sell it. <laughs>
1: exactly. So UB, it, in UB, like, you have these like glistening, gleaming towers of, you know, cathedrals to capitalism um and then you have you know like alcoholism running rampant in the yeah. streets and it's this weird thing they have it's not quite a universal basic income but the state one of the remnants of that soviet state-controlled economy was the mongolian government took interests in the mining interests so the dividends uh were distributed equally amongst the citizens gotcha so It said functionally it was the same as a universal basic income yeah kind of live off of your dividends um so that's in the 90s then in the in the first at the turn of the century the first 10 years sort of going in from like late 90s to you know early 2000s um they experienced a series within a decade there were three two or three or four major climate events uh they called zuds, and a zud is a unseasonal precipitation event. I guess in the, like here, the closest analog we'd have are the rain bombs that we now have to deal with that flooded out Kauai. Yeah. So Mongolia is essentially a high frozen desert plain, right? Rainfall very low. Um, And so Zud, you get a snowfall, a white Zud happens when the snow falls so, so thickly that the animals starve because they can't they can't get to the, the snow, underneath yeah okay. to their forage yeah yeah and a black zood happens when you have the snowfall and then it thaws and then it freezes and then the animals like it's entra- trapped in the ice and the animals yeah. can see their food but they can't they can't get, to get it. it yeah so they had millions and millions of head of livestock um die and that was the means of subsistence for the traditional nomadic peoples. And so the population of Ulaanbaatar in the span of under 10 years went from a half million to one and a half million. Oh, wow. Representing almost half of the sort of known population. Yeah. Right? So it's a culture under massive accelerated transition. Um, and when when I was in Bayanulgi, um, you know, the further out from the urban centers that you get the more intact that intimate relationship with land is. That's, Which a, that's is also generally a, the case, right? Right. It's a pattern, right, that repeats. Yeah. Um, and so, we visited these. Um, they were these statues, and they they're. I was like, "How old are these?" And they're like, "We don't know." And they're like, "It's it's our ancestors." So, oh, wow! Some thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, in those sort of shallow basins So as you get up into the mountains you, you know it's they're, they're not as shallow they're more sort of um, pronounced but when you're hunting with um, golden eagles um, if you're one person uh, and you're, I mean, they're hunting wolves, for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're going in there and what they would, the, the, the statues were placed at the rims so that they would look like the silhouettes of humans. And so it presents this illusion that to the, the, the wolf or the quarry that, that they're, they're surrounding. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And so Interesting. They would manu- yeah. And so we're out there and, you know, I was like, oh, wow, these are really like ancient, like supposed to be sacred. I'm like, you know, being like you're super careful around it and And they're like, oh, come let's take a picture. And then we're like doing selfies with their ancestors, you know, and they're like, oh, this is, a... and so it's interesting. Like there is this deep reverence, but this immediate currency and relevancy to it where, yeah. you know, like, and, and that's also something that's really struck me. Like what, what the notion of like sacred spaces, um, and of being in relationship with a sacred space, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be this hallowed thing that you're not allowed to touch and, you know, must prostrate yourself before. This was just such a um, functional, pragmatic, practical, um, vibrant, like living relationship with these super sacred objects. You sure. Know? Like... That was something that I definitely carry forth with me today.
0: Well, I I think we find that here too, where, um, you know, there's sacred spaces, but it's really sacred from a practical standpoint, right? Like it's not, I mean, it's it's spiritual, but yet it it serves a purpose. So it's a different kind of relationship than just something you worship, right? There's a functional functionality to it. Um, What's an example of that, do you think? You know, like I kind of, I kind of, like, so as I started to learn about, like, the, you know, Akua and Valkanaka, right, there's a realm where, you know, it's for the gods, which is, which are basically the rainforest mountains, and the Valkanaka is where men or people should live, and that's where we are. And really, the meaning, you know, as I dug and I learned, and this is why I loved working at Kupu, because it was just learning stuff, you know, absorbing, because that wasn't really my field, so I was kind of just learning as i was trying to form programs to teach people this stuff but um you know the 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 premise came from them understanding uh, hawaiians understanding that that's where the water came from you know the keeping the rainforest intact keeping the understory intact the moss the moss the ferns the, the grass under the rainforest trees all of that fed into a system that eventually fed to the mountains which filtered the water and then the water would then spring up you know at their in their lois or further downstream that they could actually use drink and grow right they kind of i think over time they understood that it was a system um so they deemed that mountain area sacred um i have a feeling initially they probably didn't and then they screwed up the system a little and then kind of figured out like oh we better not touch it too too far up because it does serve a purpose right so um I, yeah i think that that's the way i, I mean i kind of see it although the yours is man-made your example is man-made it does serve a practical purpose eventually for them to be able to hunt right so anyway yeah, i like that
1: like what you're evoking for me is the idea of like a sentient kind of landscape you know and that so yeah you gotta like you know chop water and carry wood is the buddha saying i guess yeah in here it's like you gotta you know pull weeds and <laughs> rick mud or whatever yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's this um yeah this kind of like reverence that you hold While at the same time, you're like inactive living relationship with it. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good example. Yeah,
0: I I mean, there's people who told me and I've, I've unfortunately never worked at a fallow lo'i enough to see it. But I mean, there's a lot of examples where people kind of go back and the lo'i is dry, covered, overgrown, and they just start, you know, working it, pulling weeds cleaning cleaning and eventually by doing just by doing that the 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 water returns right it somehow starts flowing again and then now now it becomes a grow you know, a place where they can grow right so it's, it's kind of that relationship where you still have to work it but you know there's a there when you work it it also rewards you right you know in a weird way but I mean, see, look, dude, I, you were worried about time. That was already 20 minutes just talking about that <laughs> stuff. It, it goes fast. But um, so how did you go from being a loan officer to, to becoming this permaculture? And maybe you can explain permaculture a little bit because, you know, that's even for me a, a, a relatively um, new topic for me that I was kind of learning. But how did you go from banking to to that? yeah
1: that's a sordid tale well, that's also 20 years ago that's how old i am
0: well we're about the same age man like you know, it's getting getting uh getting better not getting older yeah yeah we're just improving iterating we're iterating um, yeah work in progress that's for yeah. sure yeah version 40 whatever you know
1: <laughs> version 43 for me yeah
0: yeah see 42 here so version 42 so same same go. same thing But how'd you go into that from 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 a finance background to permaculture?
1: Well, so the why I got into finance, I have a very non-traditional um pathway. So um and I should also say that I was very privileged growing up. Like my teenage years, I grew up in Australia. Um and I'm fortunate that um my my dad and his brothers grew up in a pub um that my grandpa owned um and so that was because great grandma lynch um was a remarkable woman and uh with seven kids in tow and a a drunken mr lynch uh alongside her she um bought the mckinnon pub in melbourne um and against everyone's sort of better advice and made it work so well that uh most of her children in that like so like my grandpa and his um cousins siblings um had owned pubs or
0: owned interest in pubs Gotcha. right it became um, family bars became fi- family business
1: yeah yeah we, we have a um I, I come from a noble lineage of, of, pub owners. Hey, barkeepers,
0: barkeepers are the, uh, are the, uh, voice, you know, the psychologists of the world, man. They, they understand. They were the everything. first psychologists. That's yeah. right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, um, I'll tell you about my grandpa another time. He was a, he was an amazing character. Um, so my dad and his brothers grew up and they went to this very elite, um, all boys like Jesuit private school. Right. That's what, the trappings afforded them. Um and so I it was expected that I go to the same school. Oh, okay. Um, and that experience was formative. I was bullied really severely um and kind of grew up really quickly through that experience. Um and I also benefited from like an elite education. Sure. So my my high school education is probably equivalent to a lot of undergraduate sort of gotcha. um, college educations. Um, but um, from there, I, I was barely 17 when I graduated high school, uh, and my classmates were this odd mix of, they're basically the sons and sons of the elite families in Melbourne on both sides of the law.
0: So oh, yeah, Interesting. Like, yeah, you're like captains of industry, and like, lords of the underworld <laughs> which <laughs> you know hey, and, it happens here too in hawaii you'd be surprised they, they totally. got some gangster gangster kids at some of these private private schools too like so it's, it's totally yeah it happens yeah it was like
1: it was like hogwarts i mean it was kind of <laughs> like we had the hogwarts uniforms and everything oh there. i see <laughs> um and so um the that like, we weren't poor um, but we we always had this like never quite enough to do. We only always just had just enough. Like sure. we we lived with my grandpa. We we moved back to Australia because um, dad's business here didn't survive, and so we actually moved in with his dad, and we're all cramped up in this tiny place. And every penny went into our educations. Okay. Um, so we had this. Really surreal experience, right? Of like, I, I was always this in-betweener. So, not a part of that crowd because no more enough. And then the real friends that I made, which was just from like playing basketball on the street courts and stuff like that, um, you know, were, we had similar experiences because they were also first-generation sort of immigrants. They um, also had a lot less than me. Um, so, we had, you know, resonances and dissonances even in our own. Sure. You know, experiences. So I was um, that bullying experience left me with this conclusion like rich people are whack. and (laughs) I'm gonna show them all those punks like that I'm better than them. And the way that I'm going to do that is I'm going to figure out this money thing and I'm going to make a ton of money. Gotcha. Um, So there's a lot of anguish and and anger and underlying hurt. Um, and, and feeling of lack that really fueled my me in my early twenties. Um, so I was hell bent on trying to learn the language of capital and the, the tricks of the wealthy and all of that. Um, so when I moved back to Hawaii at age 19, um, I had read a book that said, essentially debunked the myth of a Western <laughs> sort of college education and suggested instead that I um, earn while I learn rather gotcha. than going into debt. And that my, it, it wasn't a, a financial reality for me to go into debt. And sure It, it just, it, it just, I couldn't resolve that in my head. Like, uh, and I couldn't, I certainly didn't feel right about putting the burden on my parents who had already sacrificed so much. Yeah. Um, so by age 20, I was working for Bank of America mortgage um, and was earning while I was learning um, and, Yeah, started working with like the private bank, which is the division of the bank that works with the most wealthy clients and started to learn and observe these patterns um, of behavior and of how the affluent and the wealthy would manage their balance sheets and their cash flows and their affairs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so started to learn the playbook and then started to apply it in my own life. Um, And so by age 29, I had acquired... A modest real estate portfolio here that, you know, gave me a net worth of more than a million bucks. Um, and then by age like 31, I lost it all <laughs> 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 through through a combination of like hubris and stupidity.
0: <laughs> well, and, I mean, uh, if and things. being that we're about the same age, that's about the time the recession hit too, right? If I'm not mistaken. So yeah, I'm there's sure also the global that, financial crisis. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that kind of played into it. But you probably I'm guessing your hubris mean, meaning that you probably thought you could beat it. And that's yeah. where yeah, that's where you I got, got screwed. cocky Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So I, like in 2007 I was like being flown all around the state de- doing these how to survive the mortgage market meltdown uh-huh. crisis um workshops and I would get these really polarized reactions like one reaction I get is a stupid kid doesn't know what the hell he's talking about you know and then the, the other reaction i would get was like oh my it actually makes sense like maybe i should be you know taking heed of his recommendations and da, 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 da. and so i was like i'm the only person that's talking about this here so yeah. clearly i'm going to be the only one that survives it right and we were, we were so small and so specialized that we were the first one to go under oh yeah so, when the the credit markets froze, like, about nine months before um, Lehman Brothers was on the front page. Um, So I got to watch that unfold in terrifying slow motion from, like, a front row seat, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, and that was a good serving of humble pie that I needed in my life, sure, Um, and it led me to do some really serious soul-searching. I mean, I got to such low points that you know I have had conversations with myself like is it worth me continuing my existence because I feel wow. like I'm such a burden to my family you know um, and so that's also shapes me to today because that's how sick the systems that we've built which prioritize money over life are that yeah. they like it's that's that's like psychopathic that's a psychopathic <laughs> mindset to be in a pathologically sick mindset to be in. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the, the context or the the dominant paradigm that we've created, like perpetuates that, you know? So I was, it remained to be sickened to my stomach by this and, um, very interested in bringing forth the alternatives that are generative and are life-giving, um, And that sort of draw forth our highest and best selves. So, when I moved back, um, I was my house was in foreclosure. My last house was in foreclosure. I'd sold the rest of them off. Um, My car had been repossessed. I was selling furniture, sleeping on the floor, like Mm. surviving on um, baby carrots and peanut butter.
0: (laughs) It was just like (laughs) that's crazy, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I meet my wife during this time. That's how I know she's not in it for my money. You know what I
0: mean? Well, but that's good. Yeah, right. (laughs) You want me right now, really? (laughs) All I need is carrots and peanut butter. Exactly. Exactly. So it was, you know, like um, I
1: had done everything I could in good faith to try to work with the bank, and the banks, of course, were complicit in this whole thing in the first place. So. Um, They were like, well, we don't want it. And um, ultimately what, how I avoided foreclosure was uh, when I was in that sort of like experiencing those suicidal ideations, I was like, this literally is my, my money or my life. So I've done all that I can to try to play my part and be responsible in this. I have to put this down now and leave. I'm gonna go back to my parents' home, live with my parents and, just reflect and like recover and i'm not going to return to hawaii until i feel like i have something to contribute to hawaii so i turned my house over to a buddy of mine was like specializing in distressed sales and all of that and i said wait you know if you can make a buck on this great sure um, i just i just don't have the capacity to deal with it um fast forward a year he he wound up selling it and then with all the arrears and all of that kind of stuff i was looking at being a good six figures in the hole um, and what happened instead was I had to come up with a thousand dollars to close in the deal and somebody got a, a amazing deal on a three unit property behind Diamond head. oh wow <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so um, you know that that was that's what wound up in me being in, Aus- in Australia and then while I'm in Australia, australia was is the home of permaculture that's where the concept originated okay Bill mollison and david holmgren um, and the word itself is a sort of a combination of permanent and agriculture so um these two gentlemen were trying to make sense of the world and trying like they were basically calling bs on the global industrialized food system um, and the extractive methods that and the the Like externalized costs that, you know, were were destroying ecosystems and and driving greenhouse gas emissions and all that kind of thing. And and they were like, what? Like, they started to look at traditional systems and indigenous systems. And we were trying to understand what the underlying sort of design principles might be for the design of these permanent agriculture systems. and so at the core of um, permaculture is this sort of, F, this, this, these core ethics. Um, and it, it's interesting because I've come to understand permaculture as these two white guys trying to reconnect to their own indigenous roots that they've been severed from. You know? Gotcha. Um, you know, one of the first ahas they have is a oh, common pattern that we see amongst these traditional and indigenous systems is that there's some, there's a guiding ethic, right? And so they attempt to translate that or distill that or evoke that in English. And they come up with care of earth, care of people and the fair share of resources. And that's, if you stop there and that became the guiding filter, the ethical filter that you asked before you did anything, sure. right? We'd be designing very different systems, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah very much and they, so. they take it a step right so they take it a step further and they're like well what are the design principles that we can build upon this ethical foundation um, to help us with the conscious design of systems that aren't just permanent but systems that self-regenerate sure. um, that can perpetuate themselves and that's what is so powerful about permaculture is that it is this design framework that Remember, we talked earlier about pattern to details. So yeah. the, the pattern is a sort of universal design principles that you can express in infinite ways, so that they're appropriate to the context that you're you're in. You're in correct. Yeah, and um, based and grounded in these core sort of ethical principles, right? Of care of earth, care of people, and the fair share of resources. So it becomes this really robust framework that. Um, you know, at its highest practiced um, at the highest level, um, it becomes a powerful framework for modern humans, contemporary humans to begin to reconnect with our indigeneity. Um, and like all tools, um, it can also be wielded in destructive ways. I've seen really colonial sort of methods of permaculture practiced as well. Sure. Um, and it's more reflective of the practitioner rather than the toolkit, you know. Um, so yeah, so that was uh, um, Australia was. It's not only the uh, place where um, this concept is originated, and now has become this spectacular global community of like anarchists. It's kind of <laughs> <crazy>. Well, <laughs> not quite anarchists. <laughs>
0: Not no, burning definitely things Definitely anarchists. Yeah, you, you're <laughs> well trying to tear things apart a little, but for, <laughs> for a good reason. I feel like permaculturists are,
1: they're really intent on building the new system.
0: Sure. So, Disrupt it. Disruption is yeah. okay. I mean, constructive disruption. So if it's disruption that will improve systems, to me, it, it's fine. You know, I think we need more of that here which is why, you know, I was trying, dying for a while to get you on because part of the reason I started this thing is just, I feel we got hit, the the like COVID hit the reset button for us, right? It totally hit the pause and, you know, gave us a chance to rebuild a system from scratch almost, from scratch. I mean, we get like almost zero income coming into the States, so can we rebuild the system? And I feel like after the first few weeks, I felt like, fuck we're gonna be right back where we were because i don't think people are looking at it as an opportunity to to rebuild all they want is to get the get the money train flowing again and and that's what we're rushing back toward i mean so how can that fit like what you're talking about what's our opportunity that you see right now that we could be working on as a community in this time you know, where, where is the low hanging fruit or where is not even the low hanging fruit? Where's the juiciest fruit we should be hitting right now? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot in that
1: question, Nate. Yeah, is,
0: well, I mean, wherever you want to start, and then we'll just start talking stories from there. The first um, thing I'll say is that
1: we are very. Well, let's talk about patterns, right? So if we're paying attention the indicators are pretty clear that we as a species are barreling towards an evolutionary knothole the the whole construct of uh, the, the dominant paradigm of consumer culture driven extractive capitalism that has metastasized across the world right is a zero-sum game that that it's a self terminating system, because it relies on this myth that unlimited perpetual growth is possible, right? Sure. And it's just not possible because of there are biophysical parameters, boundaries, that constrain the kind of growth that we're optimizing for current.
0: Yeah, I always liked um, uh, Nainoa's analogy that Earth is basically an island Space is the ocean, and we're not going to be able to get more resources brought to Earth. So, whatever we have is what we have. And you're right, at some point, if we exhaust our resources, it's you know, we're done, right? Sorry, we kind didn't of consumed... mean to like, interrupt. You're no, on, not at all. It's yeah, it's like it's like a
1: um, you see this in a petri dish if you've ever done any type of you know, like inoculations of microbiology to whatever, look at an E. coli culture. So you create conditions for this organism organism to flourish, yeah. and then it consumes its resource base, and then it very predictably has a crash in its population numbers. Sure. And as a species, we're doing the same thing. Um, so uh, that pattern, knowing that that pattern exists, is helpful because we can then find our agency. Um, Within that, and it also allows us to acknowledge the reality of it is a lot of what you're describing this reflex response to get back to some type of normal, or even the phrase the new normal new is normal. highly problematic to me. Like, yeah, I, I I think one thing that um, COVID reveals um, is that our systems. Are no longer fit to the complexity the level of complexity of our challenges like our our existing our legacy systems were never designed to deal with this level of complexity
0: and interconnectedness but look Um, at schools right and you're in the education space it's a school as you and i knew it is probably gone i mean it'll never you know and it's because that system is not meant to be in this this kind of um have this kind of influence with COVID, right? This is not a. Let's talk about that system because yeah. that system was
1: designed to create compliant, obedient workers. Correct. In a workforce to Correct. maintain systems of control.
0: A lot of our um, and our teaching. Yeah, a lot of our education system is left over from industrial era, um, you know, kind of philosophies, which was to create. Uh, compliant workers that are skilled that can go out and make stuff, right? That's a lot, and a lot of that's still left over, which is why we're having problems with the education system because we, not we're not making stuff anymore, but we're still trying to pump out people that we need to make stuff, right? I mean, the education
1: system is fundamentally bro- broken because the society that we've constructed that the education system was designed to support is fundamentally broken. Um, And these are big things to acknowledge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if I go in public testimony and and say this on the floor of the
0: state legislature,
1: (laughs) I don't know if anybody's going to listen
0: to me anymore. You know? (laughs) Well, it'll Um, go on the record. It will definitely be on the record. (laughs) Whether they listen (laughs) and take the advice is different.
1: (laughs) It is another thing. And then who's like, what truth is correct? Time will tell. Yeah. You know, perhaps I'm dead wrong, and the system is fine, and it's going to bounce back. And yeah. If so, I'm not sure that I want to continue to participate in that kind of a system. Sure, you know what I mean, um, and I know that there's many others that feel similar that that are similarly drawn towards, like away from um, uh, extractive, degrading systems, and towards systems that are generative and regenerative and life affirming. You know, mm-hmm. like life creates conditions that are conducive to life, and humans have built all of these highly sophisticated systems that don't take any of those, like fundamental principles of life, or, or even of like sort of universal principles, um, into into account. Um, sure. The the construct. It's not just an illusion it is a delusion and it is a shared delusion and the quicker that we can wake up to that um the quicker that we can be enter into a space where we can find increased agency to interact with that right like evolution and life processes are always a dance it's this constant interplay of we are massively shaped by our environment and by our context Um, and we also have agency to interact and shape with that environment. So it's, but it's not a either, or it's a
0: dynamic mutual emergence that is constantly in play. Yeah. So, So I mean, I mean, that begs the question. So we are what maybe a few hundred years into what would be considered capitalism. Right. Um, I I think Um, how do we start unraveling? that, that, that tangle tangled, knot, right. Uh, where, and especially here in Hawaii, where do we start? What should we be looking yeah. at? Well,
1: so, you know, in, in natural systems, um, change doesn't happen in like five year strap plans or yeah, policy correct. decisions or any of this kind of stuff, it emerges. Um, and so anytime an environmental shift is accelerated or market, marked like significant pronounced um that creates evolutionary pressures uh which drive organisms living organisms to increase their rate of mutation right and these mutations are basically experiments in the context has shifted how do we respond let's try something different let's try something new So we can see that now in our communities today, we can see all of these incredible bright spots that are emerging in response to the changed conditions. And if we recognize that in, this is a natural evolutionary process, um, we can take agency to create conditions to accelerate that emergence by doing really simple things, by like recognizing, naming, you know, that is innovative, that is appropriate to this context, that is acknowledging the realities of the situation and responding accordingly. And then nourishing that innovation so that it can thrive and succeed. um, And connecting that innovation to other innovations, other bright spots, so that now they can begin to share information and knowledge and resources, right. And each of those bright spots holds a piece of the story that they're telling about our future, they're illuminating an individual piece. of so that's what their innovation is about. When you start to connect them to each other, now they hold an individual and collective story of what that future could be. And so, so just to bring it back to answer your question, like what, how do we unravel the system? I don't know that that is what we are called to do. The system is dying, it's in its death throes maybe we, we can, we can think about how do we hospice the system and how do we accelerate, cultivate the beautiful emergence that is arising so we can
0: accelerate it's coming into being. I like that hospice. Yeah, it, that might be the, the better term. Uh, you mentioned bright spots. Like, what are you seeing locally? Maybe this name, some, some of these things that we're seeing, um, that could be some of these bright spots that we need to be focusing in on.
1: Yeah, we will start with some of the obvious ones. You know, there's the Aina Aloha Economic Futures and Uplift Hawaii and Wayfinding, um, the Way
0: Wayfinder, Wayfinder. I didn't hear wayfinding. that one. I know the first two you talked about. Yeah, and I'll link it the in, the, in the podcast because I, I think we've mentioned Aina Aloha a couple times now, yeah. Nice. Well, uh, the Wayfinder one is uh, Blue Planet put forth.
1: Waypoints, sorry. Waypoints, that's name of it. okay. Um, and those are all real. So those are all emergent responses, right. That are acknowledging our reality has shifted and it requires different response. And so they hold their unique perspectives, um, in our communities. And so, you know, that their lived experiences is informing their response, but it starts with they're each acknowledging that there is no new normal Yeah. things have fundamentally shifted. change. Yeah. Yeah. I know Aloha Economic Futures is really intensely interesting to me on a number of levels. One, because it's indigenous led. Um, two, because they're doing some really interesting real time experiments with collective governance and decision making. It's really mm. early in that, like, we're not like ready to usurp the state legislature with that. (laughs) But these early experiments of like, hey, what ideas you got? And then like, let's sit together and talk about it. And then they're leveraging technology to see input on it. And they're figuring it out as they go. They don't actually have like a predetermined, like, this is what we're going to do
0: with all of this, right? I mean, just
1: sensing into the context.
0: When I got, I think I had a real limited exposure right when it dropped and it was pretty much like, hey, here's the editable Google Doc. <laughs> like, go ahead and like, if you see something, you know, fix it, add it in. You want to expand, you know, it was really a very um, organic, natural type of of um, move. And it is very indigenous, which I think maybe that's where the I um, know Aloha what was the other one, you, the, the other one you mentioned the uh, uplift uplift was a little less of, of has a little bit less but the principles are were kind of similar right i found the interplay between the two really interesting because
1: they were pointing to like i was resonating with each of uh, things from each of them
0: yeah they were um, different so they but were pointing s- to similar things yes, yeah different but were, the same. like
1: yeah expressing it you know in ways that are unique to them and so that that's also something that's really useful for me is this idea of like dissonance and resonance. Yeah. Um, and s- because right now conversations are so polarized, right? It's sort of like yeah. this internet beef culture where like, uh, you know, we might agree on 90% of the things, but if you say it wrong, I'm gonna like cancel you because the 10% yeah. that we disagree on is just so loud for me. And it, that, that that is not gonna help us as a species to make sense of the degree of complexity that we have to deal with, you know?
0: Well, it can be an and resonance, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, like I think too often we fall into the or. You're either this or you're that. Instead of being, well, can can I do an and? And and, I mean, eventually, I would hope that the goals of all of these efforts is to eventually get to a point where all of these changes are happening simultaneously. So it does become an and, right? eventually emergence we were talking about right yeah so
1: here's examples of like just three examples of emergent responses to the change in context and so yeah what might be possible if they were in communication and we were resourcing them to be able to explore those dissonances and resonances right um and to empower them to be able to succeed in these experiments that they're they're offering um so that those are like probably some of the more obvious ones, but the the less obvious ones to me are just as interesting, if not even more compelling. Um and these are things like the um just the backyard swaps that happen. Like, you know, what I find fast totally fascinating is if you go to I was at City Mill yesterday, and there's no seeds left in the garden section. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know and so they're like people there's just this instinctual response people are like i gotta grow some shit <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah um and that in that's a non-monetary economy yes right and that that is something that our existing systems of command control of power and governance um if they can't quantify it if they can't manage it or control it it doesn't, they don't know how to deal with it. Sure. Um, and there's an enormous amount of economic activity that's going on right now, just in those sort of mutual care networks and the, the, these, these things, these like backyard initiatives that are organically springing up, you know? Um, and it's like, when I go and I trade, you know, Kalamungai leaves for whatever, cuttings of something else or, you <laughs> yeah. know, for, for, for pork meat, like yeah, it's, a um, it's a far more efficient transaction. We didn't need money to facilitate that. And it's a transaction that's actually based on relationships sure. rather I, than,
0: it's know, not, it's, it, it's less transactional. It's more relational, right? Because, um, you're, you're putting care into getting your kalamungai you know to produce leaves so when you when you trade it you know and you're getting something in return that person is also putting care into whatever the lychee they're giving you or something right (laughs) whatever it is there's there's intention behind it you know life force that's been infused into it and yeah versus like i think money or what you earn in your paycheck gets a little more diluted because you don't You're putting in work, but it's not quite the same. So when you're using money, it's a little different. It's never going to
1: capture the true essence and value of what you put into it.
0: Yeah, actual sweat, sweat equity, right? Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, and I like to, I've seen a lot of that going on too. And I think one thing that's nice about Hawaii is, um, and I'm a plantation kid, like, you know, like I'm one generation off of the plantation. So hardcore that that kind of stuff but that's how it was like back in the day that's how it was on the plantation if you had the lychee tree in your yard you know when you get planty you're giving it away but somebody else might have the mango tree right and then when they get they're gonna give you because you gave them lychee you know during the summer or something like that right so interesting what else are you seeing out there besides like that kind of stuff i mean do you think well okay let yeah. me ask you this i mean we can go on with examples for a while but you talked about command control. Um, I've also heard your talk about fractal fractal systems, right? And overlaying them on command control or having them kind of inter interplay with command control type of systems. Do you think you think the powers that be are ready to start to overlay or kind of morph their command control systems that we're currently into, at least locally, to kind of embrace some of this change i see you based smirking. on
1: what we're seeing well, based, based on what we're seeing so far there's no evidence to indicate that yeah. the powers yeah. that be are ready to do that um i think they're more aptly named the powers who think they are because
0: <laughs> the context
1: has shifted so dramatically that those hierarchical uh methods of leadership um they're just they're insufficient and you know, it's just seeing examples of that over and over and over again. Yeah. And the, so I, I, for your listeners, I, I won't go into the fractals because that was a whole
0: hour long <laughs> yeah. that you listened in on. Um, well, give us let, the, so, give us the, 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 um, executive summary, the, the, <laughs> well, let's start with this idea of like moving away from command
1: control, um, or maybe divesting from command control first recognizing command control um, well, and there are and benefits to command at.
0: control too there are yeah. right
1: like there are reasons why we th- so i think of these as human operating
0: systems and there yeah. are reasons why we've organized that way for like centuries that's um, why the military works that way there's a reason right there's reasons why it works the roman um centurions the roman army one of the greatest armies
1: in in history right was based and predicated on command control systems on these management-driven hierarchies. So they're really good at consolidating influence, right? They are really good at scaled efficiency. So you're going to get consistent sort of results, right, across that scale because it's one to many, right? Um, And what they really suck at is sensing into what's happening at the periphery because
0: Adaptation, they're set up adapting. for one
1: way. Yeah. So they're not good at sensing it, like the level of complexity I have to deal with. Now they're ill-equipped to be able to make sense of it because they're just there. That's just not what they do. It's by their nature. I, another um, way to think about that was really helpful for me to think about a command control hierarchy is in terms of our body. So um, and this kind of can help to illustrate how when command control figures out how to work in synergy with the adaptive networked sort of human operating system that um, a dynamic balance can be achieved um, and a ability for an organism to be constantly sensing into and responding to its environment, adapting dynamically in real time. so if we think about, the autonomic system of the human body we like our skeletal system you know what i mean yeah the command there are command control systems that are running that are ensuring that my heart is beating regularly that are ensuring that i'm taking so many breaths per minute or whatever it is right i don't have to consciously think about that it's just automatic it runs in the background um that is so that's optimized for consistency, right? For scaled efficiency, right? And then that provides a platform that my conscious mind can now sense into a changing and dynamic construct. And my conscious mind is informed by this network, right? Literally, network of nerves. Yeah, sensors. Yes, exactly, yeah. that's distributed throughout my body. Um, and if I want to optimize my sense-making ability, I'm going to use all five of my senses as best as I can, even in, you know, some of the most quintessential capitalist tomes of like um, essential reading for leadership. They oftentimes they'll boil it down to the art of leadership, and <laughs> it's just this feeling that you get, right? It's yeah. this intuition, it's a gut feeling. Well, that's your, your what they're describing is a whole other the, the sort of somatic capacity of your body to make sense of things and, and um, the ability to access your subconscious to expand your sense-making capacity Pro-
0: process all this information that your whole body every sensor is taking in all at once right and it turns yeah, into and like at every minute too yeah. like throughout the day right yeah it turns so, into intuition
1: yeah so now if we think about that sort of analogy and think about well, how, what How could that look like in our nonprofit organizations? How could that look like in our businesses? How could that look like in our community gatherings? Um, How would we hold our meetings? Would they look different? How would we, what type of communication protocols and patterns would we implement to ensure that we are making full use of all of our, and what is the balance between the sort of rigid hierarchical structure that allows us this dynamic sense making so that we can um, maximize our individual and our collective intelligence, right? Like these are the, and that's where the fractal nature comes into it. Because even in that example, I just went from an individual example of using, like thinking about our bodies and then adapt and apply those principles into a different context. What does that look like in a a two person meeting, in a three person meeting, in a community meeting, in a whole organization, right? Um, So the fractal is a pattern that repeats itself infinitely across scales. Um, And when you layer that across this notion of permaculture design and a universal set of design principles that can be expressed uniquely to fit the contexts that you're in, um, all of a sudden, we have access to a lot more resources um, and a lot more ability to make sense of the sheer amount of data points that we have to navigate through in any given day, you know. And it's the other thing I'll say is that it's not um, the. This isn't my words. Uh, I picked this up from a guy by the name of Daniel Schmattenberger <laughs> um, in uh, Rebel Wisdom's War and Sensemaking series. He's got some interesting thoughts. One of the things that he says is. The complexity of today's world is just too much for the cognitive capacity of a single brain. And that complexity is driven largely by the exponential nature of technology. So that complexity is not going away anytime soon. In fact, it's only going to continue to increase exponentially.
0: Too much data. Um, We have so much more data to process. I mean,
1: not only that, we have AI algorithms that are collecting millions of data points around online behavior that we willingly give up. Yeah. And then are optimizing our feeds to maximize for, or to maximize our time on screen. So they're not optimizing for any type of sense-making or truth-seeking sure. or any. They're, they're optimizing for, <laughs> time on screen yeah. because their incentive landscape is such that that's how they make their money, right? Yeah. So it, it actually, what that does is it's actually incentivizing polarization and beef culture and cancel culture and sensationalism. And it's numbing down our sense-making capacity to our base levels. Sure. Um, so how, how do we, what are the sort of network protocols right? What are the, what are the guiding principles that we can deploy consciously to help us counter all of that um, and give ourselves like in small sort of distributed groups, how can we access the cognitive capacity of a group of individuals to be able to better make sense of the the amount of complexity that we deal with? And that's, this is something that we're like experimenting with in real time even in our small little core team for the Office of Sustainability, you know? Yeah. And that can just look like making sure that we, we have two really simple practices. One is that we meet regularly. Um, two is that when we meet it's not me, it's not, an, a, the, the pattern of communication is not one-to-many sure as much as possible we try to self-regulate so that it's an equally distributed uh communication pattern and that way we're all sensing into our context together and then we benefit from that diversity of perspectives
0: yeah. um have you found that it's... more difficult to do now that you're all remote because before actually, you're in... we've, yeah we found it um i think zoom actually is conducive
1: to that The the difficult part of that is the social technology. So it's how, if I'm the, um, so I'm the senior ranking official sure. right, in the meeting. <clears throat> so how I show up in that space and how I invite and the, and how I act to cultivate that more distributed communication pattern is key is if I'm not even aware that that's an important and valuable thing, like how could I ever take conscious steps to be able to cultivate that? Sure. Right? Um, and, and so it starts with sort of that leader. And then it also requires everybody to be able to um, contribute to that, right? Yeah. Um, because if your inclination is to hold back and not speak unless called upon, that can actually be detrimental to the intelligence of the group. Yeah. So your task is to recognize that and to speak up more often for the for the good of the whole and if if you're the opposite if your tendency is to jump in and like talk a lot to get your point across then the appropriate response for you in order to create conditions to maximize that group intelligence is to actually withhold and to invite sort of responses from others so over time it becomes a a reflex um, and it's like a like any muscle you build it and you it's like this individual and collective muscle that you're you're building you know um and that's been especially over the last three months um has been has really allowed our team to be more dynamic and nimble and, and we're a small team so it's easier for us yeah. to be, like uh, like <clears throat> i often wonder like what does that look like if you know i'm the the provost of a campus of 20,000 people that we're serving you know sure
0: um what is that what is that pattern how does that pattern express itself at that scale well i would hope that all you're doing is replicating the pattern in different places right so each team is doing the same thing and you know your team is kind of kind of disseminating right i mean i think we used to do well one thing we used to do at Koopa, which i found was super helpful but it was it was good because we were all usually together was every morning it was a 10 minute huddle with with our group of you know, execs and it was just real quick. We had some prompts, you know, set prompts to go through, but it was, we go through our prompts, but then what I found was, I mean, sometimes the, the regularity would kind of break up as people were on vacation or, you know, only two of us are in in the, in the room. So it gets a little weird, but when it was, when the rhythm is good, um, a lot of things were getting, would bubble up um kind of based on what each other is noticing or what they're doing and then maybe it doesn't get solved at that huddle but then it gets it gets sort of like you know bike racked and then it's now we know that this thing is up and we gotta talk about it eventually right so it's just a way to maybe it's more like checking in on your senses we kind of know there's a everybody's putting in their feelers and giving a pulse and so it, it does make sense um you, you kind of, I know at UH, you folks have been trying to distribute or create systems at each campus through the Office of Sustainability to kind of have this kind of group collective think on each campus. How's it been working during the COVID time? It's really challenging. Hmm. It's really challenging um, because, like,
1: so my personal situation, you know, my wife and I don't have kids, so... I can't imagine the amount of complexity yeah. that so many of my friends and colleagues are dealing with trying yeah. to figure out how to like homeschool and show up and prepare for your class and all that kind of stuff. So um, what is really fascinating is we are seeing these pods just kind of self organize So there's, I suspect that a lot of the um, responses that we've seen to, for example, 60% of Manoa's classes are offered fully online. Um, and I think another 20% are hybrid, and then the remaining 20% are still offered sort of face to face. Now, that is in spite of the signal that leadership um, declared early that we were gonna be open. You know, for business as usual, but with social distancing sort of measures in place. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the I, I speculate or what I have observed um, is that the reason why 60 was well, like 80% of that campus's courses have successfully moved to online or online hybrid hybrid situations is because at the lower levels of leadership, at like the department level or whatnot, um, those leaders are sensing in. They're closer to the actual realities of what's on the ground. Sure. And so they've they've in, without a, a mandate, they've sensed that wow we need to do this thing, and so they yeah. responded accordingly, right? So there is this. That's really encouraging. Is that a lot of our organization? is displaying a fitness to this context. Um, and uh, <laughs> be careful what I say here. So there's more, <laughs> that it, it, when, when the executive function um, can begin to align with that, then all of a sudden um, a lot more creativity and agility can be unleashed. Sure. Um, and I'm, as I'm saying this, this, this isn't just Matt and his crazy ideas. I'm drawing from real world examples of large scale multinational or, uh, org organizations. I almost call them organisms. Um, that's how our community practice thinks about organizations is as a living organism. Sure. Um, and there are examples of large scale multinational organizations that have realized that they need to do this in order to be able to be successful in navigating the amount of complexity that they have at that scale sure know what i mean so um, these early experiments that are emerging um, they offer really valuable lessons that if we pay attention um, we can adapt and apply to our unique context um, it's interesting that we started on permaculture because one of the the, the big sort of um, uh, beats that we would constantly drum into our students is that observation is the key to everything. Bill Mollison wrote a whole chapter in the Permaculture Design Manual on observation. Um, and that's interesting too, right? Because like yeah. Kilo and observation is so core to Native Hawaiian sort of practices yep. and when you think about the continuity of indigenous cultures and the way that intimate observations with land are encoded like in chant and melee and dance and art and whatnot in landscapes, um, that isn't it interesting to think about like a multi-generational observational (laughs) kind of lineage that you can tap into um, to be able to make sense of changing times Um, and that's what that's what's needed today is we need to, first of all, recognize that there ain't no new normal. Yeah. This where where we're at is a predictable result from the systems that we have created. And so understanding that those genealogies are key, that gives you key context, understanding the patterns of what happens. For example, if you study the rise and fall of civilizations, there's some really predictable patterns that happen that, um, <laughs> are popping <make> up the <laughs> indicators yeah well the the indicators that express where you're at in that cycle become yeah. just they, they they become really difficult to ignore like sure. I, I give you a really bizarre example of this um so part of my dark obsessions is like i'm obsessed with things like the rise and fall of civilizations you know <laughs> so i've done a bunch of reading on this um and one of the books um i think it was of the same title um, he was talking about the life cycle you know of great civilization look at the Roman Empire look at the, the Greek Empire look at the Persian Empire look at all these different you know the, the Han dynasty the different dynasties in Asia and whatnot and so there are these really predictable patterns that happen and one of the things that happens when a, a, a great civilization is in decline like a consistent pattern even across those ancient civilizations is that the um, general population becomes obsessed with a grand spectacle of sports, like the gladiators, right? Oh, okay. To distract from what's actually going on. Sure. And with like there's this bizarre human obsession with celebrity chefs. So <laughs> the Roman Empire was going into decline. They had like a whole class of celebr there was this obsession. The societal obsession with celebrity chefs. Interesting. Isn't Uh, it fascinating? I read this like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right? And I was just like, oh my God. Like,
0: (laughs) If you think about the last maybe 10, 15 years, there's a lot more celebrity chefs now. I mean, well, people who are famous. 24-7
1: cooking channels
0: now. Yeah, 24-7 cooking channels. I mean, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, you talked about the the being observant. I think maybe that's what we're missing. you know, like I can speak for myself, like not learning that as far as like it being second nature to how I operate. But if you think about, you know, Hawaiians, like they figured out a lot of things because they recognize that they're here for a short time and whatever it is evolved to work a certain way. And it's probably the most efficient way it can work, right? And they're trying to not change it, but live within it and kind of understand the flow. But maybe that's what I know for me personally, that's probably what I miss a lot um, is not having that practice of being able to see the patterns, see, see why things are existing a certain way in nature, and then kind of applying it, you know, in other ways, right? I think though that that's something that we all have access to immediately. That's
1: something that tomorrow we can start to reconnect to. Um, uh, observation is it's it's a it's a ancestral practice that we are all heirs to, even if we have been severed from it or if we no longer practice it. Um, and this pattern recognition, this practice of observing to a pattern reveals itself. And then it this self inquiry of like, well, what is that pattern telling me? And what, what are creative ways that I might intervene in this system because patterns reveal systems um, to be able to interact that, that to me is something that what's really encouraging to me in this time, is that uh, and I'll quote Bill Mollison here, um, co founder of Permaculture. Uh, it's one of my favorite Mollison quotes. It's along the lines of, "Though the, the problems of the world are increasingly complex. The solutions remain embarrassingly simple. <laughs> like what we're saying, observe, all we're saying is just pause and pay attention. And if you do that, then all kinds of good things start to happen. You know, you drop out of that reflexive emotional response and you begin to be able to start to use your, all of your senses to make sense of something Um, and i I keep landing on finding agency because i think that's so so critical in this confusing times like that's a question that a lot of folks are grappling with like we're being told that we can't go out that we have to do this we have to do that where's my agency in that you know and um, there's enormous agency just in the process of mindfulness and remembering and living into these reflective practices of cultivating observation so that we can recover what our ancestors did so well for like tens of thousands of years and that is to figure out how to interact with highly
0: dynamic and complex systems in ways that are conducive to life (laughs) perfect hey where i want to be mindful of your time that's a perfect way to end um you know thanks again for coming on um we can always do this again hey maybe someday i might actually have like a real studio so you know we can we can actually (laughs) talk face to face but i always appreciate talking stories with you man i always learn a ton so um don't hang up stay on um but yeah this is a lot of fun yeah thanks again for coming um and uh take care thank you nate